question, what makes a great Christian? A great Christian is not someone who achieves great things for God. A great Christian is not someone who achieves great things for God. Now, a great Christian may end up achieving great things for God, leading so many people to salvation, building this hospital, doing this missionary work, whatever it is. That may end up happening, but that isn't alone what makes a great Christian. Neither is a great Christian someone who believes great things about God. So a great Christian is not someone who achieves great things for God, nor is it someone who believes great things about God. Sometimes we look at those who have all of the answers to apologetics or, you know, the critics. What do I say to them? Well, you say this. Like, oh, he's so godly. He knows everything. Or you're like, I need to find a Bible verse. I'll ask Wes. He knows he's really godly. Sometimes we associate knowledge with godliness Being a great Christian is not limited to somebody who achieves great things for God, nor is it someone who believes great things about God. A great Christian is someone who receives great things from God. It's not my achievements that make me great, nor is it my beliefs and my great knowledge. It's the person who receives God's greatness, his great work, That makes a great Christian. And that means all of us in here have the ability to be a great Christian. It's not limited to your ability or to your intellectual prowess or your knowledge of the Greek scriptures. That would... That would put, you know, Dr. Denny up here and Pastor Mike over here and... uh, Who can I pick on? (laughs) Me way down here. (laughs) But if it's about receiving God's greatness, there is a consistency there. It's his greatness. And now it's about who wants his greatness in their life. And that's what we see with this man born blind. Being born blind, he had absolutely nothing going for him. He was at a severe disadvantage. And yet, in this passage, we find out that he is the very first missionary in the Bible. He is sent by Jesus before any of the twelve are sent by Jesus. Go and wash at the pool of Siloam, which John properly tells us means sent, or more of our vernacular, it means missionary, the sent one. And what does he do? He washes, he sees, and he is sent. And he begins proclaiming to his neighbors and to the religious leaders of his town what Jesus had done in him. He was a great Christian, but he did not achieve much. He sure didn't believe much. He never even said, hey, Jesus, there you are. Heal me. I know you can. He simply received much. And if we didn't catch that yet, Look with me at verse 11. He answered, The man called Jesus made mud and anointed my eyes and said to me, Go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Verse 15. So the Pharisees asked again him how he had received his sight. Verse 18. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had 
received his sight. Four times. If the reader didn't get it yet, he's like, hey, he received this great stuff from God. But the Pharisees, here's a big hindrance to receiving great things from God. Verse 24 So the second time they called the man who had been born blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Then down in verse 29, we know that God has spoken to Moses. This idea of we know puts you in this posture closed. Now we know. Don't tell me anything. We know. That is not a posture of receiving anything. Contrary is the man born blind who has the opposite posture. Not only has he received, we saw that mentioned four times, but look what he says in verse 25. The exact opposite of the Pharisees. It says he answered, whether he is a sinner I do not know. One thing I do know. That is the posture of, I don't know anything. Anything is possible for me. Anything is possible for God. I only know one thing. He does mighty works. And I want to receive those mighty works in my life. C.S. Lewis wrote this. And basically what he's going to say is unbelief is closer to God than pretending to believe. So saying I do not know is much closer to God than saying I know. He says in mere Christianity, when a young man who has been going to church in a routine way honestly realizes that he does not believe in Christianity and stops going, provided he's not doing it to annoy his parents, the spirit of Christ is probably nearer to him then than it ever was before. So when that young man says, you know what? I don't believe any of this rubbish. I'm going to stop going to church. Lewis is saying he's closer to the truth than the man who sits there and says, I don't believe any of this rubbish, but I'm going to believe. I'm just going to kind of, I mean, I'm going to pretend that I believe. I'm just going to kind of like will it, you know, kind of make it happen. Like, oh yeah, uh-huh. Amen, brother. And just, if I profess this stuff, I'm good. Lewis is saying there's an honesty there's a, there, there has to be this open posture of receiving, or at least the possibility of receiving, this, this confession of, I don't know. The agnostic is much closer than the Pharisee to Christianity. I came upon this story, again, in my, the, the best commentary ever on John. I'm not trying to, he's not paying me, don't worry. Um, <laughs> But like the more we truly grow, I found the more I truly grow, the less I really know. I've realized that in my spiritual maturity, I, 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 and as I gain knowledge, I'm like, there's more I just don't know. And what the, this commentator, Frederick Bruner, says is this. He recounts the story he found in a hymnal of all places. A miner's life was greatly changed uh, in a, during a conversion during one of the Wesleyan revivals. And his fellow workers noticed this great change in him and poked fun at him and said, oh, what? You don't really believe that Jesus turned water to wine, do you? And this is the miner's answer. 
I don't really know if Jesus actually changed water into wine. I wasn't there. But I do know one thing. In my house, Jesus changed beer into furniture. (laughs) And our man born blind stands before the question of the Pharisees and says, I do not know, but I know one thing. I was blind, now I see. So what we see in this simple man is a gradual process toward belief. We often get the idea that blindness is an extreme of not knowing anything, and then the eyes being opened is the far other extreme of I now know everything. You would think that that's how the metaphor works, except that the text goes out of its way to tell us it's not how it works. That once his eyes are open, he's only beginning to understand little things. And he's gradually growing in what he believes. Listen, I'm going to go through this because I think it's important for us to understand that everybody in this room does not believe exactly what you believe. And I don't just mean that they might have a slightly different theological perspective than you. I mean that they may have doubts in places that you think are fundamental to your faith. Yet they want to follow Jesus. And I am saying we do not have to enter into our Christian walk having everything figured out and believed. But for some people, and maybe most of us, if we're honest, it is a gradual process of accepting some of the things and the truths we're taught about God. And we must be patient with our brothers and sisters who don't yet believe what you believe. They are not, not Christians. Sorry for the double negative. They are Christians, but they're growing like this man who was born blind. So let's look at the progress. I think you'll find it interesting that his spiritual maturity, uh, he gradually sees with increasing clarity, that's going to be clear, but also ambiguity. And you might find that true in your life too. So first, to his neighbors, let's look at the progress towards clarity. To his neighbors, 9 verse 11. He answered, the man called Jesus. That sounds like one of those stuffy professors in some liberal college, doesn't it? Yes, yes, we've done studies on the Jesus called the Nazarene. He was a man, and all we can possibly know about him, I've read so many books that say the same thing, all we can ever know about him is that he was a Jew and he was crucified. That's, that's what this man sounds like right now. The man called Jesus. Listen to how, listen to how uh, clinical the description is. The man called Jesus made mud, anointed my eyes, and said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed and received my sight. Just like almost verbatim of what happened, right? The man called Jesus. Then in verse 17, the Pharisees ask, uh, who do you say he is? Since he opened your eyes, he answers, he is a prophet. Hey, hey, that's better than just a man. He's a prophet now. He speaks the word of God. Verse 33. If this man were not from God, whoa, he's growing in his belief, isn't he? A man, a prophet, 
And a lot of secular people will give that Jesus might have been a prophet. But from God? This is sounding very belief-ish, isn't it? Then 38. He said, Lord, I believe. When Jesus asked, do you believe in the Son of Man or the Son of God? Lord, I believe. Full-blown confession. What a progress. But some of us tonight might, or some of our friends, might be at the place of saying, uh, well, he's a man. I know he existed. Others might say, I believe he had really good teachings to share. Others, he's definitely from God. Whether or not God, I don't know, but he was from God. And then maybe you, I believe you are the son of God. Hey, in all four of those places, someone might be in one place or the other, and it doesn't mean they're not a Christian. They're just growing. Their eyes are gradually being opened, and we have to be patient. So that's his growth towards clarity. But now what about his growth in ambiguity? I like, this is interesting. Notice in 9-11, we already read it. So he's just very stating the facts is exactly what happened. Then in the first interrogation, when he answers Jesus is a prophet, you'll notice in 9.15, he uh, says this about how Jesus gave him sight. He said, he put mud on my eyes and I wash and I see. Got very short, didn't it? That's it. Just didn't tell him, not, you know, just skip the whole go to Siloam, just says, and wash and, and, and I see. Then you'll notice a much more dramatic jump in the second interrogation in verse 25, Whether this man is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, this is now how he summarizes the account of his seeing. I was blind, now I see. (laughs) That's a big shortening up from saying, well, this man made mud, anointed my eyes, told me to go to Siloam and wash. I went, washed, and received my sight, all the way to, I was blind, now I see. But sometimes this happens. As we believe, grow in our beliefs, some things become clearer, but some things might become more ambiguous. And we might have no other way of explaining things than just, I don't know. I just know that it's changed me. And the younger in their faith are like really gung-ho about having like detailed 10-point arguments against everybody. And they want to convert the world with their powerful words. But sometimes when we grow in spiritual maturity, we seem to feel more ambiguous about things sometimes. And we're like, ah, you know, I thought I knew all the answers, but I don't. All I know is that I've looked back on my life and I see more now than I used to. And that's okay, too. I do not know one thing I do know. So what I learned from this is that the blind, the man born blind comes to a conclusion at the end in verse 38. Lord, I believe, right? He comes to a conclusion, but that conclusion would never happen without his inclusion. Follow me? Unless Jesus had seen him, reached out to him, opened his eyes, this conclusion, Lord, I believe, would never have happened. Think about that for a second. Sometimes people need to know they belong before they can believe. Yet sometimes I fear that we've turned Christianity into some sort of a secret club and you got to tell me the secret password before you belong. 
confess this creed, tell me this doctrine, tell me you agree with this. It's like, sing our mantra, get our anthem right before you even think you're one of us. Get your accent proper. It's not a secret club. Some people need to know they belong. The blind man rejected by society, by his own parents, even by the disciples. But when Jesus says, I care enough to spit and make mud on your eyes and tell you to go wash, now his belief process begins. Gradually, granted, but he gets there. Sometimes we need to tell people they belong before we demand they believe. So here's, I, here, here's our action. Here's what I'm asking us to do. <laughs> this might sound really, but I hope in context it doesn't sound really like new agey, but I'm saying welcome the agnostic the person who just says, I don't know what I believe and I don't know what I think about Jesus, welcome that person because they might be closer to seeing than the Pharisees who say, we know. <clears throat> welcome the agnostic. Not only the agnostic without that person out there who has all of his you know, strange, confusing things, but the agnostic within yourself too. Welcome that agnostic Don't see yourself as a lesser than the other Christians just because there's this part of you that doesn't know or is in doubt. Welcome that agnostic within you and see that Jesus is patient to let our eyes gradually see more and more. So let us remember that a great Christian is not necessarily someone who achieves great things for God, nor is it someone who believes great things about God, but it's someone who receives great things from God. And when that happens, you may get to the other two. So I want to finish with this one quote from a guy, uh, Jean Venier, who works with uh, a lot of disabled people in France. And it's really eye-opening about how belonging can lead to belief. He says this, My experience has shown that when we welcome people from the world of anguish, brokenness, and desperation... And when they gradually discover that they are wanted and loved as they are and that they have a place, then we witness a real transformation. I would even say resurrection. And that's that's his way of saying their eyes being opened. Their tense, angry, fearful, depressed body gradually becomes relaxed, peaceful, and trusting This shows through the expression on the face and through all their flesh. As they discover a sense of belonging, that they are part of a family, then the will to live begins to emerge. I do not believe it is of any value to push people into doing things or believing things unless this desire to live and to grow has begun to emerge. The power of belonging So why do we have a secret club mentality? I think it's because we fear those being born in utter sin becoming our teachers. Did you hear that? The Pharisee said to the man born blind, you were born in utter sin and would you teach us? And we would rather close the doors until people say, I believe, 
because we don't want to have a man born blind teaching us. Amen. And that's, that's scary and powerful to look within ourselves and say, is that Pharisee in me? May by God's power that not be said among us.